I'm Elena. I'm Quill. And I'm Jim, and this is Topic Lords, the only place on the internet you can hear topics discussed. Elena, would you like to introduce yourself, or do you have anything to plug? Uh, today I watched the first episode of The Rose of Versailles, which I've been meaning to watch for like 10 years. It's, it's an old anime, but it's good. I'm enjoying it. What's it about? Uh, it's about uh, a, a girl who's raised as a boy in pre-revolutionary France who becomes Marie Antoinette's guard. I bet someone on the audience is into that. Yeah. And Quill, would you like to introduce yourself or do you have anything to plug? Uh, yeah, so I'm a software engineer. Uh, if I was to plug something, I guess earlier today I was listening to the album Air Decade by the Chicago artist Venusai. Uh, it's a real good album. It's like kind of late 90s, early 2000s style, like electronic kind of reminds me of just like decent turn of the millennium uh, club music. It's good, like background music for working. Cool. Are we ready to start on some topics? Absolutely. Eleni, your topic is some people put on music and then just talk over it instead of singing along. Why? Yeah, that's exactly the question that I have of people. We get in the car, we go in driving, and they they put on some music, and then they just start talking. And I'm like, I can't talk, I'm busy singing. <laughs> is it specific music, or Not is it just- any music. Hmm. Does it music? Does it have to be something you know? It helps. Like, it helps me sing along if it's something I know. But if it's not, then I, like, still try a lot of the time. I can usually catch on to at least, like, the chorus, right? Right. If it's in, like, another language, then I, I don't have to sing along. And if there's no words, then that's obviously fine. So if it's in our language, do you wind up talking over that? I don't know that I would choose to talk over it. But, if like, if somebody talked to me, then then I might like respond to them. Yeah, this is um this is especially interesting to me because we grew up together. Yeah. And my relationship with song lyrics are very different from yours. Yeah. Like I just don't tend to pay attention to them and when I do pay attention to them I don't like really get meaning from them even if the meaning is obvious when you pay attention. Yeah, it, it's so crazy to me that people, there are people like that. There's, there's one of them right here. Yeah, like some someone had to explain to me that Itsy Bitsy Spider is about perseverance. Wow. Wait, it is? I thought it was just about spider. No, it, the Itsy Bitsy <laughs> Spider goes up the spot again. After it was washed out. Yeah, it keeps trying. It doesn't give up. I guess that makes sense. Uh, I think I'm kind of in between the two of you where I... I pay attention to lyrics and music, but I rarely sing along because it, it, it kind of seems like that's the song's responsibility. I feel the same way as <laughs> if I was to maybe speak along to a movie or something. It would feel a little weird. You're, like, you're, not, you're not into shadow casting? Not really, no. I like the idea, I guess, but not myself. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm kind of like a bad audience member for that reason. Like, I have to really restrain myself if I'm at a, like a, a concert or a musical where you're or like some sort of performance that you're not really supposed to sing along to because I just, I, I gotta, I gotta. It sounds hard. It sounds, it sounds hard like life. a hard life. <laughs> I feel like it'd be awkward if you were at like a musical or an opera and you just start singing along that, that could yeah, be no, covered. I, like I went and saw Rent, I don't know, a year or two ago. And I was, it was like pain as I was like trying to not sing along or just sing along very quietly so as to not disturb the people around me. 
but I don't know how other people do it. It's like, it's just automatic. Like if I don't pay attention to myself, I'll just start doing it. Yesterday I was trying to eat dinner, but I had made the mistake of, so like this whole, the whole there's a whole sea shanty craze going on right now. So I like have had the sea shanty playlist I made a few years back and I was like, oh, I bet there's some new good stuff to put on that. So I had been adding music to it and that was playing. And then I was trying to eat dinner, but you can't eat and sing at the same time. You can try. And I was just like, oh no, I can't. I'll wait till the end of the song and then I'll eat. And, but then the next song would come on and I was like, oh no, now I have to sing this song. So could you just like in the the sea shanty that's going around? Yeah. Uh, the the Wellerman. Once was a ship that put to sea. The name of the ship was a belly of tea. The winds blew up her bow, up down below my belly boys blow. Soon may the Wellerman come to bring us sugar and tea and rum. One day when the tonguing is done, we'll take our leave and go. It's structured such that. Uh, one person sings the verses and everybody sings the choruses. Could you only sing the choruses and eat during the verses? I might be able to get away with that. I would have an easier time getting away with that if I knew a harmony voice. Right. Because the harmony is not going to sing at certain times. And so then it's like allowed. But I don't like I haven't super picked up the harmonies to it. So I, I usually just sing the lead line. I'm only tangentially familiar with the whole sea shanty thing going on right now. Although to kind of take a, a meta approach, I'm very curious when people listen to this, if they're going to assume that I don't know how long this is going to be a thing. So this is going to plant this recording directly in, I feel, January 2021 or February 1750. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Yeah, I, I mean, it's going to come out in probably like five or six weeks. And I bet people will at least remember Oh, yeah, the sea shanty craze of January 2021. Yeah, they might remember that that one song, right? Yeah, by the sea shanty craze, I really just mean that one song that everybody (laughs) likes. It's a good one. It is. But yeah, like for me, lyrics are like really the the central part of the song. Like they're far and away the most memorable thing. And it's like weird to me to imagine that like you wouldn't parse the meaning of the words while you were listening to the song. I am aware that other people are like, the voice is really just like another instrument for me, but that's, that's not how it works for me at all. Yeah, I was um, listening to the the performances of the Wellerman, and I was trying to figure out like what 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 is it that makes this a sea shanty? Because like first of all, these are some really perfect sounding like barbershop motherfuckers, <laughs> and that's that's not what. Presumably, what actual sailors sounded like. Probably not. When they were singing their work songs. So, what is it about this that makes it sound like uh, a sea shanty? And I was thinking, like, well, maybe it's the mode. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's the guy's accent. Yeah, his accent really fits with the song. I tried listening to the longest John's rendition. There once was a ship that put to sea, and the name of that ship was the Billy a Tea. The winds blew harder, bowed it down. Blow me, bully voice, blow. <laughs> Soon may the Wellerman come to bring us sugar and tea and rum. One day when the tongue in is done, we'll take our leave and go. And like, it's it's all right, but it's not as good as that one dude with the gal. What what is it? Galwagon or Glasswagon? Fuck, Scottish. The Scottish accent. <laughs> right. 
and the last thing I thought of was like that the lyrics were about being at sea and catching a whale. Wow. It's the song is about whaling. It is about whaling. <laughs> but yeah, like structurally there's like a stuff that shanties have in common, right? Like they have pretty simple chords. They generally stay like within an easy singing range. Like they don't have like wild jumps or usually like have multiple octaves or something like that. Yeah, that makes sense. And they have like a very simple cadence typically. So, you know, you can all time your hoisting of the sails or whatever to it. Right. I'll again admit that my knowledge of sea shanties is pretty limited, but I kind of feel like just from what I know, it kind of seems like a big part of it would also be ease of singing, very similar yeah. to a, to like a drinking song. I, I, in fact, even think that like a drinking song could just be a major key sea shanty. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's a, a fair amount of overlap between drinking songs and sea shanties. Like I'm thinking right now of Admiral Nelson's Blood, which is like a fairly central example of a sea shanty, but it's very much about drinking. <laughs> right. Also, I kind of feel like sea shanties are probably built around the I am a lot, like uh, hmm. the weak, strong, weak, strong sort of kind of yeah, sway to it. Like a heave ho sort of sense. Right, right. It it would fit with the the motions you're making. Yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm presuming like all these songs were like you would have a different song for every task. Huh. Now I'm now I'm curious about that. Like, is there a, a task for like I don't know hauling in the anchor versus hoisting the sail versus I don't know, whatever the hell people did. Something about a forecastle. Yeah. When I think about this being sung by like average, untrained, drunken singers, (laughs) I like I have a pretty low standard in mind, but also like back back before recorded music, everybody performed music because that was just how you had music in your life. Yeah. Right. And and so it may be that like a lifetime of practice has really uh, made everybody uh, good at singing back then. That's interesting, because like if you think about it, if you like think about people's handwriting in the past, everybody had gorgeous handwriting, right? Like you don't <laughs> see chicken scratch from the 1800s. Everybody's got this beautiful calligraphy. And how much of that do you think is like that we've selected the best? I mean, maybe, maybe I'm just, you know, a, there's a historian listening to us right now being like, oh my God, you wouldn't believe the horrors I've seen. Right. But at least all the, the stuff I've seen, it's like they just practiced writing with a pen so much that it was easy to make it look good. Mm. Yeah. I do think that a lot of those documents are probably by like upper class, well-educated people. Though, That's to probably true. Kind of bounce off what Jim said. But, like, if you consider, like, okay, the amount that upper-class, well-educated people were doing their writing, if the lower-class, less-educated people were singing sea shanties at least that much, maybe they were that good. Yeah. Are we ready for another topic? Sure. Yep. Quill, your topic is being the only person in a movie theater slash concert. So, I'm kind of curious, has this ever happened to either of you? Um, I think once I went... With one other person, and me and the person I went with were the only people in the movie theater. Yeah, I feel like that's either that or just very, very few people showed up. Has happened to me. I don't really go to the movies that often, but it seems like I just happen to choose very weird times to go to (laughs) to movies. Uh, In fact, the last time I was at a movie theater was actually on New Year's 2019 going into 2020. My friends and I decided to go see 
uh, Cats the Musical, the motion picture, the <laughs> ride. And we went in, it was a showing at like 11.30, so it was going over midnight, and we were the only people there. And then when we left, we couldn't, we actually left early because it was Cats, and we mostly went for the novelty of celebrating the new decade with Cats. Uh, so we left <laughs> early, and we went to tell anyone in the in the building that we were leaving, and they could turn it off. It seemed like everyone had already left. <laughs> you just... The only person in the entire theater, like all the workers were gone. Yeah, we like walked around into like back areas and couldn't find a single employee. <laughs> Who wow. was running the show? I imagine no one. Are they struck by robots? Uh, which isn't as bad. So a couple years ago, I decided to go see a movie by myself on Christmas Eve. It was, I think, a 10 p.m. showing of uh, Pitch Perfect 3. Because I thought... <laughs> That's... All right. I feel like 10 p.m. on Christmas, Pitch Perfect 3 is like the sort of thing that you get the movie theater to yourself for. See, I kind of thought it was going to be opposite. I thought like, oh, it's it's Christmas Eve. People are home like for the holidays. No one's working tomorrow. I'm sure that this is probably a time that people go out to, to the movie. So I bought my ticket well in advance and I showed up and there were two people working at the theater. And I was literally the only person sitting in this theater for the duration of this film, which meant that there were twice as many employees as there was <laughs> me. Yeah. Uh, there was also an extremely awkward moment where I need to get up and use the restroom at one point, which mean meant that this film was then being projected for zero people. And I, I had this brief thought of maybe I should tell them that I'm going to the bathroom and like I'm coming back so they don't stop it. But also, pause it. like I'm the only yeah. person here. Maybe they can pause it. That'd be kind of nice. <laughs> yeah, it'll mess up their schedule. Yeah, I, I kind of have a feeling that whoever the manager was kind of decided, yeah, we'll put Pitch Perfect 3 at 10 p.m. No one's going to go see that on Christmas Eve. And then I decide to show up and ruin those people's day, probably. I apologize to them. <laughs> I mean, they were already working on Christmas Eve. They were. They probably knew what they signed up for. Oh, they wanted to have a party in that empty theater. That would be cool. I, I feel like that would be really neat if they just like had the theater to themselves because they work there so they could like get away with things. Whereas I was trying to be on my best behavior because I figured like these two people are here just waiting for me to go home. Right. Mm. So similarly, I mentioned being the only person at, at a concert, which I think is a much stranger experience that I've had. Uh, I was at this, well, when I say concert, it was a relatively small show uh, a little over a decade ago. And one of the opening bands was just so bad I don't know a nicer way to say it, that everyone left, uh, <laughs> including the person that was running the show. Like it was at a record store. The guy running the store said, you know, he, as he was walking out, just said like, good luck and walked out. I mean, that I was the last person in this, this store watching these two guys play their bad music, which really kind of, if I was the second to last person, I wouldn't feel that bad because I could just walk out and there'd be one more person left. But I was the only person I thought, it's like, if, on you. yeah, if I leave, they are literally play, playing to zero people. Uh, I, I did leave. Their music was that bad. Oh, no. <laughs> I, I guess. It's a definitely a different thing, because also, like, if there's nobody at a, a movie, right, then people just didn't show up. But if there's nobody at a concert, then, like, there's a difference between, like, people just not showing up for the concert. Like, you're the only person who came versus people came and then they're like, I'm going to come back later. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
and I've played a band myself, and usually there, I, I've been at a couple shows that were small enough that it's pretty much just bands for playing uh, playing for other bands that are playing at the same show. Whereas uh, in this case, even the other bands left during their set. How how did this opening band get picked? If like the owner didn't like them and the other bands didn't like them. So this particular store, I think they also had a very small, very short-lived record label, and I believe that they were maybe on the label or trying to get on the label. Uh, they're, they're kind of trying to, to go for, like, if I recall, a sort of thrash rock sort of thing, but they it was just, from what I recall, a drummer and, and a guitarist, and they both played so loud that neither of them could really hear what the other one was playing, so it kind of sounded like extremely loud guitar and extremely loud drums completely playing out of sync, not playing the same songs even. Wow. I feel like if you're you're a record store and you're trying to be a record label and you have some people on your label playing, you should find some way to support them, even if that support is like a sound guy who turns down their amps or like somebody who softly pulls them aside to be like, perhaps you should stay in time with each other. Yeah, if if the uh, if the if the band members can't hear each other, that is the sound guy's fault. So like there weren't monitors or anything, so they were just playing off of their like the the drums weren't mic'd and the uh, guitarist just had gotcha, a, yeah. an amp stack. And the store manager actually asked them like to turn the the amps down, but they said like they mostly play off the feedback, which I I, I like noise music. I've gone to noise shows, so I'm not averse to extremely loud, extremely aggressive sounds. But this was so loud and so uncomfortable that it uh, it just made it a very unpleasant experience. I think it's actually the only live performance that I've ever walked out on. I mean, I would have walked out too. Most normal concerts are too loud for me. Same. Are we ready for another topic? Sure. Yep. My topic is Aspire Graph, but for your butt. I'm just thinking about I don't know what you guys were imagining when you read this and agreed to it but I'm <laughs> just thinking about you you sit on this thing and then you poop in a spiral oh pooping okay I was like sharpie in the butt <laughs> okay sure that's another way to do it but you know nature's sharpie <laughs> my main interest in this was really to hear is it is there something that kind of prompted this idea oh well I mean presumably but I don't remember what it was. Like all the <laughs> ideas, all the ideas that end up in this topic bucket were things that I thought of and then put in the bucket and then get left there for months mm-hmm. until I get around to talking about them. And usually I've forgotten the inspiration by the time I, you know, probably it was potty training. Oh. Probably it was potty training Winston. Do you think a toddler would be more into potty training if they had a spirograph for their butt? Oh yeah, I think I think Winston would be more interested in sitting on a spirograph than on a potty. He'd like he'd get to go on a little ride, <laughs> and then he'd get a work of art afterwards. Oh man, you can hang it on the fridge. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it put it as close as possible to the food. <laughs> I find I entertained that you went for the child's entertainment because I, I, uh, I I'm just picturing you, Jim, just like training your child how to how to use a toilet and just think like this would be so much more entertaining if my child didn't just make straight lines with their <laughs> well listen i don't need 
I don't need to be entertained by my child pooping. Like the child <laughs> pooping in the toilet is enter- is like that's good enough for me. It's the kid who needs to be convinced to sit there, a sit there, and b stay there until they're done. Poop in the toilet is its own reward. Right. So, like mechanically, how does this biograph work? You like sit on a little thing that has the teeth and is like on wheels, and it's like how do you how do you move around? So do you know that um, I don't even know how to describe this thing, but it's sort of like a disc that you sit on, and in mm-hmm. the middle there's a there's another disc that sticks up through between your legs, and then you spin that disc relative to yourself, but that disc disc stays in place, and instead the bottom disc spins because you're sitting on it. I, I think I kind of know what this is. Yeah, like what well, is like nausea inducers for children. <laughs> that's right that's the brand oh man it's a combination nausea and butt spare graph it looks like this toy is called a sit and spin that sounds familiar see i feel like it would be easier though to just move the is this going to be on paper would this be on normal paper or toilet paper is that a joke now <laughs> <laughs> oh, i was thinking we could cover the entire planet with my spiral pattern <laughs> a horror manga about that, right? This is a lifetime project, yeah. <laughs> That's like an Uzumaki thing. Would it be one continuous poop, or is this like over the course? Like, would it be everyone <laughs> is using this? You fiber in your diet to have one continuous poop. Yeah, yeah, I would need a nozzle or something. Like, uh, <laughs> like I'd get one of those uh, cake decorator funnels. If you, if you did that, you'd be like practice different icing patterns, right? Like, you, have you seen those cookie decorating videos? Uh, no, that's one I haven't. That's a genre I haven't come uh, across. It, there's a, a lot of, like, icing videos on YouTube where you can watch people icing cakes and cookies, and they do a very good job. They're very skilled. And I'm just thinking if you could get it the right consistency, you could use different piping tips, and you could, you know, make some real works of art. Yeah. Which would add in the kind of additional challenge of finding the right diet to get at that consistency, I imagine. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I probably need to eat nothing but oatmeal from now on. <laughs> yeah, so at that, that point, like, not only is the final work in art, but also your life then becomes itself a work of art. It's a performance piece. Yeah. So this is what I'm raising my son to do now. <laughs> performance art? Yeah. People can ask him what his life is a commentary on, and he can give some completely incomprehensible answer. I almost feel like this could be something that like Damien Hurst could have done at some point. Damien Hurst, I don't know that name. Uh, he's a modern pop artist who a lot of his work is kind of um, uh, the way that I interpret it is trying to evoke anger at the art industry. Uh, he's kind of famous for painting like series of dots that have no meaning that have not been even touched by him. So they're, they're just from his studio. Probably his most famous work was uh, called The Physical Impossibility of Death in the Mind of Someone Living, something along the lines of that, which is just a uh, a shark that's been encased inside of a completely clear rectangle. All right. Is that an actual shark? Taxidermy? Uh, yes, taxidermy shark. Preserved, yes. But he, uh, he tends to do things that are very... He does work that seems to want to aggressively annoy the 
larger art community by creating things that are as pro- pro- sometimes as preposterous as possible and then they sell for millions of dollars and <laughs> it becomes this kind of cyclical thing where it becomes funny that a piece of work that he made just to be extremely expensive uh sells for an extremely expensive price and is this like the guy who duct taped the banana to the wall or is that somebody else yeah i was about to bring that up too <laughs> I'd say it's like along the same sort of like mindset. Uh, some of my favorite okay. kind of postmodern artists right now are people that kind of hold a mirror to the absurdity of the high art community and just kind of point out how ridiculous it is that people are kind of making these massive purchases and massive movements within the art world. Right. Right. But they themselves are also then selling their art for millions of dollars. So this is like. This is like the ironic cocaine. <laughs> it's like it's just like regular cocaine, but it's ironic. Yeah, I, I'd compare it maybe to um, the one performance slash piece by Banksy where he went into a museum and hung up uh, one of his own paintings, where by being a famous artist, he put this piece in a museum, but really is the act of subverting the what you should be doing in a museum by placing a piece of work in the museum that kind of became more important than the painting that he actually hung, uh, which kind of brings up this question of, do we leave this piece up or do we take it down? Because this is not what you do at a museum. You take a photograph of it and hang that up and then take the original down. There's a uh, Yoko Ono piece. That's very, that, that reminds me a lot of that from her book, grapefruit, which uh, I believe is just called something along the lines of peace on replication, which is just, paint a painting, have people take photographs of it, destroy the original. Interesting. And then people take photographs of the photos. And then destroy the artist. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I do think that, so I, I know a lot of people who make art, and I do think that like, what distinguishes people like this from them is just the salesmanship. Like, I, I really think that like the, this, this, I'm looking at right now, this, this, um, a shark embedded in a formaldehyde solution. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's it's interesting to look at, but it is not, I wouldn't value it at $8 million. Yeah, I mean, like, the art is not the shark itself. It's like the dialogue, right? Yeah, a lot of it is this guy's personality, his reputation, mm-hmm. uh, and his ability to sell himself as as a creator. Um, and I think that's what makes someone a successful artist these days, as opposed to being like a successful musician, which comes from like playing music people like. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a lot of people who play music people like that nobody ever hears, though, right? Uh, how do people like the music then? I mean, like, it's the sort of thing where like you have some friends who like your music or like you play local gigs or whatever, but like you don't make it big. Like, I feel like there's probably a lot of like good small bands who have like a loyal following of like 50 or a hundred people, but aren't like generally known. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I think there's a, there's a qualitative difference though, between like the, a musician who makes a living doing it and an artist who makes a living doing it. And the artist in the sense of like these artists where the, for the musician, like the primary differentiator between like a successful and an unsuccessful musician is the music. Whereas in this one, I don't think it's the art. I think it's the salesmanship. Maybe that's me being cynical. I don't know. I, I guess my perspective on it is that the thing that you're calling salesmanship, 
a lot of that is the art in my mind. Like the, a lot of a modern art, as I understand it, at least it's probably not called modern art anymore, right? Like modern art happened 20 years ago, yeah. but uh, a lot of, of modern art is like the actual physical object is not the entirety of the art piece. The art piece is like, it is a dialogue with the rest of the artistic community about like, I am doing this in response to other art that exists. And like, there's like a context in which you are interpreting this art piece. And like, there's a, like a, like kind of a, a thing that you're adding to this artistic dialogue by putting this art into it. And like, that is itself the art more than like, I put a shark in a box. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, I I feel like that's a philosophy that you could trace back to specifically like the Impressionists who started uh, the Salon of Rejects, which was a gallery uh, of only paintings that were specifically rejected, I believe, from the Parisian Museum at the time, or artists like uh, Duchamp with uh, the fountain just trying to take uh, something that is absurd in the idea that it is just a uh, a urinal and placing it, bring it to a point where it can be shown in a museum as a piece of art, uh, where it is purely the act of displaying it becomes the art rather than concentrating on the work itself. Yeah. Uh, are we ready for another topic? Sure. Yes, I'm very amused that we got there from Spirograph for your butt, though. <laughs> <laughs> That's this show. Uh, this is a write-in. Daniel asks, legacy board games such as Pandemic Legacy or Gloomhaven uh, do one of you want to describe legacy board games, the idea? I can give it a go. So a legacy board game is a board game where, uh, by design, when you play it, you modify the board or the cards or some rules of the game in a way that changes the way the game is played the next time you play it to create a, a story arc over the course of many play sessions. Yeah, and how does this happen physically? So the one I have actually played to completion is Pandemic Legacy. And this happened by, you would like uh, stick stickers to the board. You would physically destroy cards. You would stick stickers into the rule book. Um, There would be like some packages that you were supposed to open at specific times that would like add new types of pieces that you could play with or that would add new uh, types of characters that you could be or other like changes to the rules. Yeah. Yeah. To me, a lot of the experience is just opening up a new board game box and seeing that it's like an advent calendar. Yeah. You, you only have like (laughs) access to maybe 10% of all the materials in this box and the rest is hidden from you. And, and are you making decisions when you do this? Like a, like, are you choosing or some some aspect of the game you played has a result on which stickers you place? Uh, yes. I don't want to, like, give spoilers for Pandemic Legacy, but, like... Design a new game right <laughs> now and then come up with a hypothetical... Right, right. But one of the things you do in Pandemic is you build buildings. Yeah. So one of the things that you can do at the end of each game is choose to make the some, some buildings permanent so that they'll start there where they were at the beginning of the next game. Or if you like cure certain diseases, which is like the normal win condition for a pandemic, you can like choose to like carry over some of that knowledge of how to treat it so that you have an easier time treating it the next game. Yeah. Yeah. The thing that sticks out to me as interesting about this mode of, of 
creating a board game is that when you said uh, 90% of the stuff is locked away, this is actually how video games do their onboarding is they will introduce you to all the moving parts of the game. There could be many of them, but they'll show you them of just a few at a time. Mm-hmm. And then they'll mm-hmm. only show you the next one when you've gotten that one ready and you've demonstrated a knowledge of of that piece of the puzzle. And by contrast, traditional board games, the onboarding process is really arduous where you have to basically read and memorize uh, uh, like a you know dozen page book of rules and then and then re- keep that in your head while you play. Like you have to do it all at once before you can even start playing the game. Yeah, I mean, legacy games are are kind of a mix between those because you do have to have that same knowledge of how the game is played. It's just also that's going to be changed each time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like I like the idea of like you know just having start out with an extremely simplified version of the game, and then add complexities as you go. And the fact that the complexities are different for different different people mm. is uh, kind of just a bonus. Yeah, I feel like I ha- I didn't finish it. I only played like two games of the Betrayal Legacy game, Betrayal of House on the Hill. Yeah. And Betrayal of House on the Hill is probably my favorite board game. And the Legacy version of the game was pretty interesting. It starts out much simplified from the base game. So I think it does more of that thing you're talking about than Pandemic Legacy did in my experience. Okay. Like Pandemic Legacy kind of assumes that you're familiar with Pandemic and you know how to play the game Pandemic. Right. And then makes adjustments from there. Whereas the Trail Legacy, like, was kind of like introducing you to the game in the first place with the the first few. Yeah, because if I recall, the first kind of Legacy game was Risk Legacy, uh, designed by Rob Davio, who went on to design uh, Pandemic Legacy and a bunch of others. I think that the success, well, Risk Legacy didn't really see a whole lot of success, but Pandemic Legacy really kind of blew up and hit like number one on the board game geek top list of all time for a while i feel like part of its success was kind of taking a pre-existing formula that was already well loved and people had torn apart that game and researched it and uh understood it well enough that he was able to take what people liked about it and just amplified it a lot more a later game that he made uh seafall was kind of built around completely original mechanics so it, rather than being based on something like betrayal or pandemic it was all a self-contained game built from the ground up i kind of feel like that was its big failing was it was taking all these legacy mechanics where i thought the legacy mechanics were extremely interesting but i felt the core game that was based around was extremely weak and i feel like it could have done a lot better if it was instead of being a new ip based on tried and true pre-existing game yeah that makes sense so this guy is um he made risk legacy for what hasbro I believe so. Like as under contract for Hasbro, but the, but then he's gone on to to make legacy games for other companies as well. And it's kind of amazing to me that he got away with taking the word legacy and the idea of that with him out of yeah, this contract gig. They didn't copyright the concept of a legacy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's interesting because there, there are weird laws about like, you might know more about this, but from what I know, you can't really patent or trademark specific game rules but yeah the, the fact that he was able to continue to use the term legacy is kind of surprising yeah i wonder if if he trademarked it himself uh this is kind of tangential but i actually proposed to my wife with uh pandemic legacy oh yeah and you like hide it in a box or something how'd it work 
Yeah, so if you recall, uh, and for people that haven't played it, there is a one of the boxes in the game you're essentially supposed to hopefully never open. Oh, like the, if you fail three times in a row or whatever? Uh, yeah, so... Yeah. It's just filled with anthrax. <laughs> it, it actually is the pandemic that gets released, yeah. <laughs> so, I uh, yeah, I took the ring box, and luckily it fit directly into that box, so I slid it in, in there, which meant that for months this ring was just sitting in a game box on our shelf for probably about four months or so. So were you like intentionally throwing games to get it to happen or? No, I realized, I realized that it was pretty unlikely that we were going to lose three games in a row. And if we did, maybe it would happen earlier than expected. But my goal was kind of to get to the point where we were either done or almost done and then say, hey, we should open the box just to see what was in it anyway. And Yeah, yeah, that's what, that's what we did. It also led to a weird scenario where at the the ceremony that we did, we had the pandemic legacy board out for people to sign, uh, which was on leap day of last year. So about two weeks before the world was hit by a real pandemic legacy, we had people sign our cool pandemic legacy board. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. So when you run out of new content, which apparently has happened to you, Elena, can you just keep playing it? now it's just like your own modified pandemic board that is like slightly different from a normal pandemic board. And have you played it since then? Um, I'm not sure. We were kind of pandemic out by the time that that we finished. And then we tried playing Pandemic Legacy 2 and it was not as good. I I don't know that we ever like went back to the first one yet. Yeah, I was just curious. Like it, at that point, is it does the the draw of it, like the the enjoyment of playing the board game kind of get superseded by, like the motivation gets superseded by the motivation of seeing the next thing happen? Yeah, I'm not sure. If I were going to go back and replay our Pandemic Legacy board, like would I just play a normal Pandemic game on it? Or like would I like go back and go, I want to replay June. Oh, yeah. Because like each, each game is supposed to be like a month over the course of the year, right? So like different events happen that like completely change the wind conditions. Like there's specific wind conditions each month. And sometimes it's like, all right, rip that up. The thing that you were working towards turns out to screw you over and now you have to undo it or whatever. It would be kind of cool to go through and like replay different months to see if we can get different outcomes. But I guess that also doesn't work exactly because you then be remodifying the board. Yeah, there are a couple legacy games that I know kind of come with a like the ability to reset the game so that you're not permanently changing the board or changing how the game works. Mm-hmm. Uh, I will say when I first heard of legacy games, I was kind of turned off the idea of this game that you have play through once and then it's kind of over. Yeah. That being said, I, I have a collection of probably around 40 or 50 board games behind me. And a lot of them I feel like I've played maybe two or three times, whereas the part of the draw of Pandemic Legacy was it's one of the only games I think is in my collection that I've played over 10 times. Uh, I I think we played probably 16 sessions total to get through the entire game. And that's not something I can say about a lot of the games I own, including ones that cost more than Pandemic Legacy. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm I'm trying to think of like what board games that I have played, I have played more than 10 times and it's not a long list. I mean, like Betrayal House on the Hill and... The Resistance, and maybe Love Letter, freaking Settlers of Catan, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure. It's kind of funny, because, like, there's this, like, one board game that, like, I ran into the the person who was making it at, like, PAX, 
and played like the the prototype version, got really excited about it, helped with the Kickstarter, got my version, and still actually have never played it myself. What game is that? Lisanne. Hmm, not it's like with a, it. a kind of like medieval strategy war game sort of thing. But I really enjoyed the strategic component and I generally don't for that sort of game. So I was like, ooh, one of these that I actually like. And then I was like trying to get other people to play it with me and it's only four players and I got four other people who were interested in playing and I was like, how about you all play and I'll watch. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> That's the only time that I've broken up the box since I got it. I'll admit that I'm also quite guilty of, I have a lot of games that I've, board games I've never played which seems kind of weird, but I think it's mostly because there was a period of about two years, I'd say, where if there was a tabletop game on Kickstarter for under $20, I would just back it if it looked vaguely interesting. So there was a bunch of like very small games that I at one point backed on Kickstarter and then got a year later and thought, like, oh, cool, I, I remember paying for this thing and completely forgetting why I did in the first place. Right. Uh, are we ready for another topic? All right, let's go on. Yeah. Quill, your topic is weird sleeping apparatuses. Elena, can I get a ruling here? Mm-hmm. Is it apparati? <laughs> I guess it would have to be, right? Like the U.S. becomes an I if it's Latin. And is, I is it Latin? This is a Latin word? I don't know. I'm, I'm going to look it up. Or is it like octopus where it would become apparatodes? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's... That is it, it, it tooth doesn't it is not the pods of it. So oh apparati is hypercorrect. So it's not Wait, what does hypercorrect mean? Like you're misapplying the rule. Uh ah. like you're you're seeing that it ends with an a US and you're like, oh that's gotta be one of those ones that turns into an I. But actually it's apparatus is the doublet of apparat. Okay, interesting. But hypercorrect, I, I definitely want to be hypercorrect in everything I do. <laughs> so I'm just going to keep saying apparati. Fair enough. So let's talk about this. Yeah, so I brought this up because I know in the, pack, uh, in the past you've talked about a device that you're using now, I believe, for sleep apnea. Is that correct, Jim? The CPAP, yeah. I thought I'd just kind of bring up, uh, I'm kind of curious how that's going, but also I want to bring up a couple weird sleeping devices that I've gotten throughout the years because I've had a lot of trouble with sleeping throughout pretty much the past 20 years that I can remember, (laughs) Um, mostly due to issues with my back. So uh, for a while, I was sleeping in a hammock. I still have a hammock set up all the time just in case I feel like sleeping in a hammock, which that just became kind of like my norm for a while. But they realized that one of the big problems I had was darkness. I sleep a lot better in total darkness. So I bought a tent for my bed. Uh, It seems like it's mostly something that is sold for like people that live in dorms and whatnot that need extra privacy. But I mostly got it because I have blackout curtains, but they only do so much living in a city. So I have blackout curtains and then this tent next to a hammock. So it just kind of makes my room look like a very bizarre. It's like a playground. Yeah, like a campground sort of thing. A very dark campground. I, I was kind of curious if either of you had have had similar experiences just buying devices to help you. For me, it's mostly been weird pillows. Like, I have blackout curtains also, which helps. But, like, my sleep issues mostly relate to... I have neuropathies or something in my arms where, like, the only sleep positions that are, like, comfortable, like, the ones that I automatically get into while I am asleep, no matter what position I start out in, they end up either pinching the ulnar or the radial nerve, and I wake up with numbness in my hands. And so I'm like constantly buying different weird pillows to see if I can like prop myself up in some way 
so that I don't wake up with half my hand numb. Yeah. Have you considered like getting like a concrete tube to place <laughs> under, under your pillow that your hands go in? Uh, the thing that has been working for me most is that I got like one of those pillows with the little arms that you're supposed to like, it's like a reading pillow or whatever. And I have that like up against the headboard and then my normal pillow kind of leaned on it and that kind of makes a tube that I can stick my arm through. And then like if I angle it up by like resting my hand on the little arm, then it like usually does not pinch, but uh, it's not the most reliable. I'm curious if there's like a market of bespoke pillow makers that can make a pillow that is specifically designed to not just your body, but also how you sleep. I'm imagining now like you, they send you like a, a like a pillowcase full of plaster that you, you sleep on and it hardens in the night into the, the perfect shape for you. And you send it back to them and they carve you a pillow in that, that precise shape. All right. I just, I just pasted something in chat. The arm sleepers pillow. Yeah. Like, I, maybe, but that person's arm is straight up, and I, for me, I like the arm. I, I like to yeah, have you it bent. Yeah, you need one that, that fits your curvature or, or something that yeah. like can adjust if I had, like, with a your configurable arm. tunnel underneath. Maybe it would work for me. Yeah, I, I I've been trying to just switch to sleeping on my back because that way I'm not pinching my arms, and also like I do have like a mild sleep apnea. I tried a CPAP and it was horrible, and I couldn't sleep with it. And also, it's just kind of creepy how they monitor your compliance. Oh, do they? Yeah, they're really strict and weird about it. Yeah, like, well, I think you have worse insurance than we do, but mine still has a SIM card in it that they use to phone home. Yeah, they track you every night to see how many hours you use it. And if you don't use it, like the doctor recommended number of hours, you're non-compliant and they'll like, they'll take it from you. You don't deserve it. Really? Yeah, that didn't, that didn't happen with us. Like (laughs) when they gave it to us, they were like, you were, you own this now. What? I wish they'd let me own my CPAP. I was renting it. Yeah. I don't know if I wish they had let me own it because in the end, it, it didn't work great for me. Although maybe I should have tried different masks, but the yeah. nasal columns or whatever the hell they were called did not work out great. It, nasal it your nose, and then if you open your mouth, it just, you're breathing out like a dragon. It makes a weird <laughs> noise. Sounds delightful. I got the um, the full face mask because I was like, I most of the time my nose is stuffed. So like... Yeah. It's it's worked fine for me, like which is apparently rare. Like apparently compliance is usually under fifty percent. Oh wow! Because it's just super weird to sleep with this fucked up contraption on your face. It's just blowing into your face constantly. It's not comfortable. Right, right, and then like it's even worse if you're claustrophobic. You know. <laughs> God, for me, like if I'm sleeping in a bed with another person and like they're facing me, I can't face their face because then I'm breathing their breath. And that's just like not comfortable. Well, I I can't like I have the a different problem now, which is that uh, I'm constantly blowing cold air directly in front of me. So if I face April, like she has this cold spot on wherever I'm facing. Oh, no. <laughs> Terrible. It also makes cuddling more difficult. Yeah, that was like one of my concerns when I got it. Because I was like, you know, I really like to cuddle up until the moment that I'm going to fall asleep. Yeah. And that's it's a lot more difficult when you have like this tube affixed to you yeah when you said full face i imagine it's just the lower half though right <laughs> no, it's not like it's forehead to chin <laughs> <laughs> it's like a darth vader mask it's like an astronaut bubble uh full face means it covers like from the bridge of the nose to the chin okay yeah it's blowing into your eye sockets 
Listen, my eyes need air too. Uh, so I have found I found that the CPAP has provided my body a very strong signifier that now is the time to fall asleep. Oh yeah, when I started using earplugs, that was that's what happened for me. Like as soon as I put in the earplugs in, it was like, oh, sleep time now. Uh, that same thing happened for me, but with my earplugs when I started using them. The guy I was dating snored really badly, and so I started sleeping with earplugs every night. And then it just became this thing that, like, as soon as I put an earplug, my brain was like, sleep time now. Yeah, yeah. And if you're, like, someone who, you know, reads in bed or, you know, looks at your phone in bed, then, like, just being in bed isn't enough to signal to your body that it's time to sleep. But if, you know, you put on this loud, weird mask. (laughs) You're training yourself. Yeah, exactly. You don't then proceed to read more then it's uh, really effective. But like, I've also had a much easier time sleeping since uh, I transitioned from making video games full time to taking care of my son full time. Mm -hmm. Taking care of a kid is like a much harder job than I've ever had. And so I'm tired by the end of the day. (laughs) And that also makes it much easier to fall asleep. Yeah, that makes sense. And also like the kids schedule... You kind of have to stay synced to it in a way that, like, if you're working on video games, then you might be like, well, I, you know, I want some non-video game free time after work. And I'll just, I'll just stay and do some whatever. It doesn't really matter. And stay up. What I would do is I would, I did my best work late in the, in the night anyway. So, like, when I was working on video games full time, I like, my work day was, like, right at the end of my day. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. But yeah, like it, I have a much different sleep schedule now. I used to go to sleep at 2 a.m., which was a compromise that I came to because I had to work out a, a way to live with April. Like <laughs> and before that, it was later. Right. Yeah, I, I used to be the sort of person who would be like, oh, it's dawn. Maybe I should go to bed. Yeah. And I think I, I got some like sleep app on my phone that like, track like when like the correlation between like when I went to sleep and how long I slept for and then like how rested I rated myself as being the next day yeah and eventually discovered that like if I get like seven and a half hours of sleep starting at like midnight ish and waking up at like eight ish I do pretty well so I've been like trying to be a pretty stickler about that since learning that and it has helped it's interesting to me that the specific time of day had a such a big impact on your quality of sleep. There was actually like this um, this quiz that I took at one point. I don't know, like morningness, eveningness, or something. Like it was a really weird quiz, but it like specifically was checking like what your natural circadian rhythm is. Apparently, my natural circadian rhythm thinks that like if I was going to do light therapy. I would want to start the light at 6.45 a.m. Like, that would be my optimal light therapy time based on my natural circadian rhythm. Huh. When do you usually get up? Uh, I usually get up at, like, 7.38. So that's even earlier than I, I typically do. And, like, maybe I should be trying going to bed at 10, and maybe I would be even happier. But stuff is happening at 10 p.m. that I want to be up for usually, so... What, what kind of questions did this quiz ask? It was stuff like... I think it was like on days when you don't have anything to do when you normally wake up and like uh, if you sleep like this long or wake up at this time, like how do you feel? Stuff like that. I don't, I'm not sure, but I could, I could link it. Yeah. It was an interesting quiz. Yeah. I'm curious. 
But yeah, it, it turns out that like the specific time of day is, is important, not just the hours. That is interesting. Yeah. That makes sense. And know, jumping back a little bit, the CPAP didn't really work for me. So I've been trying to figure out how, ways to sleep on my back. And I'm very naturally a stomach or a side sleeper. Like I kind of sleep in like the three quarters position often. Um, and so it's, it's very difficult to get me to stay on my back. I feel exposed. Wait, why do you want to sleep on your back? It's better for sleep apnea if you sleep on your back. And also my arms wouldn't go numb because I wouldn't be putting pressure on them. Oh, interesting. I definitely, I, I have the opposite effect where like I would only have the sleep apnea effects like uh, I, I would have the outward sleep apnea symptoms when I was sleeping on my back, but not my side. Hmm. Huh. I, yeah, I was definitely told uh, when I was like doing my sleep studies and whatnot that I should really be trying to sleep on my back because it opened up your airways more or whatever. That's interesting. I wonder what the difference is. Have you considered sleeping in a hammock? I have not, and maybe I should. How is a hammock for cuddling? Bad. Okay. <laughs> okay. But uh, it, it does kind of force you to sleep on your back. Right. It also, the, the kind of convenience is it just kind of forms to whatever the shape of your body is because it's just a piece of cloth. So uh, you don't really have all the kind of like limitations that you get with with a normal mattress. Huh. That sounds kind of nice. Like, I things that I've been thinking of recently is, like, maybe if I, like, get one of those, like, U-shaped pillows that they make for pregnant women that just go, like, literally around the entire body and, like, pile it up around me, maybe I wouldn't be able to roll over, like, physically because there would be pillows in the way. If I just make, like, a nest of pillows around me. That might work. Uh, April loved that. She Yeah? She got one of those and then... I felt replaced because <laughs> she was suddenly cuddling this thing instead of me. Oh no! Which is apparently a common uh, a common social problem people have when they pick up this these pillows. Huh? Are there like known solutions for? Oh, you know, just good communication. <laughs> no, that makes sense. Yeah, the, the only other solution that I've come up with is if I, you know, those Velcro walls where you put on a Velcro suit. Yeah. And you take down a trampoline and you stick yourself to the wall. I could sleep in one of those and just stick myself to the bed, right? And then I can't move. Okay, so I thought you were going to sleep on the wall. <laughs> yeah, I did too. I didn't think of that. No, I was just like, I just need a Velcro's pajama suit, but you could, I could take it the one step further. I, I think you can move is the problem. Like, you have to be able to get off the wall somehow. I mean, maybe somebody else comes and peels you off the wall. Yeah, but I think you can also just like pull your arm away. Maybe like, so it might be like one of those um, wet the bed alarms where, you know, when you, you'll still wet the bed, but you'll wake up to a shrill beep. You'll wake up to the horrible Velcro ripping noise. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure if I, if I would like exert enough force to rip Velcro apart while I was asleep. Listen, if you... Like, what if your partner, like, has a heart attack in the middle of the night and you wake up next to a corpse and you can't get up because you've been Velcroed to the bed? Oh, God. Horrifying. Now I'm kind of wondering if it would be possible to have some sort of, like, time-activated Velcro that maybe limits your movement for most of the night. but like Time-release Velcro. Right at the eight-hour point, it just <laughs> drops you on the ground. 
maybe you could do like the thing where you have like a freeze some part of the fastener into an ice cube that will melt over the course of the night. Like you have like the, the, it's like Velcro straps that are also frozen in an ice cube and you could, could possibly pull them apart until the ice melts. You could just freeze yourself in the ice cube and then Brilliant. you couldn't you couldn't move. Cozy ice cube nest. I like this ice Velcro solution because it does seem like the best way to sleep would be to be both itchy and extremely cold. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I'm looking for in, in bedding. I So I, I'm pretty sure this won't work, but now my mind is going to like the time we visited the salt flats. Yeah. And I was just kicking at the, 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 the wet salt on the <laughs> ground and noticing just how similar it was to snow. Uh-huh. Because they're both they're both crystals. Right. And like thinking you could like you could probably make like a, a salt man if you rolled this stuff up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or like an igloo. Oh man, a salt igloo. Yeah, so what if you made the ice cube out of salt and then it wouldn't be cold? Like s- salt that melts? Right. And there that's the that's the problem. Isn't liquid salt like what they use in nuclear submarines? Uh, I've never heard of this. That sounds exciting. Well you wouldn't really need it to melt, you just have to get it to dissolve. So maybe something that it's frozen in this hard oh, yeah. salt, but then when it's time for you to wake up, it just pour, pours boiling water over all of you to help release the salt. Right. Perfect. A really heavy weighted blanket. Just so heavy you can't get up. <laughs> right. And then you have a crane that... Uh, it hoists it off of you in the morning. Right. You know, I'd go for that. I have like three or four different weighted blankets now because I love the idea. Like literally since I was a child, I was like, what if I had a blanket but heavy? And I was like, one of the first things I looked up online when I got access to the internet was like, can I get like a chain mail like sheet? <laughs> Just like a really fine mesh chain mail, the size of a bed sheet. And like, turns out, yes, but it's like $40 per square foot. And I've never quite felt like that was worth it. But, you know, maybe it is because at this point I have like three or four different weighted blankets and none of them are quite satisfying because they all like keep a fair amount of heat. And I would like to sleep a little bit cooler than that. And also the standard weighted blanket design is like, it's like, a quilt made out of bean bags, right? It's not an even pressure. There's like little oh, pockets. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And I hate that. Like, I'm the sort of person who like has to have their sheets perfectly lined up with no wrinkles, lying directly flat on top of them because if there's any unevenness of pressure, it like is too, too distracting for me to sleep. This is tangential, but I'm curious. Have you found a way to wash weighted blankets? Because that's a problem that I'm facing right now. I mean, I tried putting it in the wash once and some beans came out, but like it got clean. I, I think the, the main thing I do is I just keep them in duvet covers so that they mostly don't get dirty themselves, you know? Mm. But yeah, when I sleep with my weighted blankets these days, I have to like layer them on top of other blankets that will like diffuse the pocketiness. And then I'm like extra warm because I already like normally sleep with two blankets to try to approximate any weight. And then adding a weighted blanket into the mix becomes a bit like an oven. Mm. Are we ready for another topic? Sure. A linear topic is how special live frog in hot stone pot 
on the delivery menu. So last weekend I had a craving for Chinese food. So like specifically actually what happened is I YouTube recommended me one of Lizzie Key's videos about I don't remember making some traditional Sichuan dish, harvesting various vegetables and de- drying them on on the tree and then cooking them into something or other. Um, and it's like Lizzie Key makes these very aesthetic, soothing, completely unrealistic videos about like this perfect idealized farm life where she has this enormous sprawling farm and she wears perfect outfits that stay pristine as she goes around her farm with her adorable lamb trailing behind her and she she harvests her her fresh cabbages and takes them to the kitchen and makes them into some beautiful dish to serve to her her grandmother and they're like very like calming heartwarming videos and i was like watching this and being like now i want Sichuan food Uh and so i don't know the chinese propaganda is working but so i was like looking up Sichuan restaurants that are near me and i found one that looked pretty good and i was looking through the menu and one of the things stood out to me as house special, live frog in hot stone pot. And I like, at first I was just like, no thanks. You know, like I like frog as much as the next guy, but I don't need it alive. You don't need a new pet frog. Right. You know? Yeah. Is this food? Right. I assume? Unclear. But so like, you know, I ordered my mapo tofu and, and went on my way, but then I was like lying in bed that night. And I was like, hang on. So this is a delivery menu item. I have logistical questions. Like, how do they guarantee? Do they guarantee that the, the frog is going to get to your house alive? Does it come on the side and you have to put it in a hot stone pot yourself? Right. Are they giving you a hot stone pot? Like, how does this work? Yeah, there there are a lot of components there because, like, I, I feel like I've seen takeout hot pot or delivery hot pot, but usually it's just components that you're supposed to reheat yourself. Yeah. But this is specifically a stone pot, which makes sound like i think i'm more getting caught up on the stone pot than i am the frog at this point (laughs) (laughs) like are they giving away stone pots are you expected to drop it back off at the restaurant later they send the delivery person to your house twice once to pick (laughs) up the pot and they make sure that you got rid of the frog well they they want the frog back too (laughs) they only have one frog and you have to share it with everyone else that orders this (laughs) it just it does a little song and dance while you eat right and then it goes back to the restaurant yeah, like, I'm a little curious to just order this and see what happens, but, like, it sounds like possibly one of the more likely things to happen is just they, like, torture a live frog. Yeah, and you would, and it would be your fault. Right, that's not what I want. But, like, if I could get the frog on the side and then, like, give it, I don't know, to a friend who wants a pet frog, that, that'd be all right. Maybe they'll just send you a frog-torturing kit. <laughs> <laughs> Instructions. Yeah. Yeah, like, how would, they, how would they guarantee that the frog, like, even stays with the food? Like, like, would they send it in, like, a little box with air holes? I imagine that the frog would be fine for the duration of a delivery drive. I don't think frogs are that sensitive to, like, they get in a car and they immediately die. I guess that's probably true, yeah. Like, it, I think that, like, it would, it would be risky if they put it in the hot stone pot before delivering it to you. And so, like, the risk with having it not be in the hot stone pot is then just, like, does it actually stay on the side? Or does it, like, you know, get into your, your DoorDash driver's car? I'm usually the sort of person that if I see something really weird on a menu, I'll order it. But usually it's because something that is less descriptive. Like, there's a Chinese place that uh, we order from pretty often that I think 
at one point they just had something on the menu that was called i would say like chicken 45 i was like that sounds okay that sounds like a food uh i ordered it and it was good but i got because i there was there were no other numbered items on the menu whereas live frog in a hot stone pot seems like it could either literally be that or maybe that's just like the term for something else like maybe it's like just a descriptive term like so there's this like russian dish called uh herring in a fur coat and it is not actually a herring in an actual fur coat it's a a herring that like has like shredded vegetables on top of it right so like maybe it's something about this is metaphorical maybe the frog just looks alive maybe it's not really a hot stone potter yeah it's probably just like a dead frog in a bread bowl or something (laughs) yeah like another thing here is that like uh so like i'm like Willing to eat organ meat. Like, I like tendon and I like tripe and, like, liver is fine and so on. But I don't know about eating a whole animal. Because, like, you don't... Normally, after you... Like, when you butcher an animal, part of it is cleaning it, right? There's poop in there. Yeah. I don't want to just eat that. The whole animal. Part of the the kit they send you is also a frog enema. stir this before you put the frog in the pot otherwise it'll shit the pot right so is this dish actually frog fraction six (laughs) (laughs) no the frog comes whole it doesn't come in fractions frog fraction 65 so i'm looking up chicken 65 i thought it was chicken 45 it might be 65 i couldn't find anything called chicken 45 but chicken 65 what's 65 about this chicken so there's a there's just a bunch of folk etymology for the name, unfortunately. Aww. But it does seem to be a, a well-known specific way to prepare chicken. I think it's interesting how like a bunch of Chinese foods kind of have these weird crystallized names. Like probably if some if this food was being imported today, they would like come up with something, some other way to describe it that was like more appetizing for modern audiences. Yeah. But, like, at the time when it was imported, they were just like, let's just call it, you know, what it is, or let's just call it something totally unrelated. And then that name just stuck. Yeah. Yeah, I'm also looking it up. Just to correct myself from earlier, it does look like an Indian dish, not a Chinese dish. I think I was confused because there's a lot of Chinese restaurants near where I live that all have, like, weird numbered names. Actually, a lot of them, I believe, are Vietnamese restaurants. But, yeah, numbered food. Maybe it's something where just the first 64 dishes weren't as good. <laughs> and this is the 65th one. Yeah, like Formula 409. Or maybe it's the 65th chicken. Maybe it's the fifth chicken six. Whoa. So maybe it's not chicken 65, it's like chicken 65. If, if chicken six was so good, why isn't there a chicken 65? <laughs> was chicken six so good? Apparently it was because there is a chicken 65. <laughs> Chicken six sounds like I don't know Ocean's Eleven, right? Yeah, it does. It sounds like a heist. Sounds like a kids' bop version of Ocean's Eleven. (laughs) Chicken run. Well, there's no chicken nine because chicken six, seven, eight, nine. Oh no! And that's all the time we have for topic lords. (laughs) Elena, if this is something that you want, where can people find you on the internet? I, you know, Discord. All right. And Quill, if this is something that you want, where can people find you on the internet? Also, the Topic Lords Discord. And uh, if you want to message me directly, just whisper to a pigeon and it will get to me. All right. Excellent. 
All right. You know where to find these two fine folks. You have to pay us money to get on the Topic Lords Discord or become a Lord yourself. Thanks so much for being on. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you. Hi, this is Jim. This is the audio I append to every episode of Topic Lords. Congratulations to our newly anointed lords. If you'd like more people to hear the show, you can tell your friends about it or rate and review us on whatever podcast service you use. You can add content to the Topic Bucket by emailing topicbucket at topiclords.com. You can contribute to our Patreon at patreon.com slash topiclords. Patrons get episodes a week early, and you get access to the Topic Lords Discord, where you can discuss topics with all the lords that hang out in there. See you next episode.